You're listening to the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, Episode 7. This episode, I'm talking with Howard and Michelle Hall. Together, they own and operate Howard Hall Productions, which is a natural history film production company specializing in marine wildlife and marine conservation films for television and large format theater. They are perhaps best known for their underwater IMAX films. In 1994, Howard directed the first underwater IMAX 3D feature, Into the Deep. And in 1998, Michelle produced and Howard directed the IMAX feature, Island of the Sharks. Then in 2005, they returned to the IMAX 3D format by directing and producing Deep Sea 3D, which was awarded Best Picture at the Giant Screen Cinema Association Conference and Best Large Format Film at Wild Screen. In 2009, the halls released Under the Sea 3D. This film won Best Cinematography at the Giant Screen Cinema Association Conference and Best Documentary at the International 3D Society. Howard was also director of underwater cinematography for the films Lost Worlds, The Living Sea, the IMAX 3D feature Return to Hubble, and was underwater cinematographer for the film Journey into Amazing Caves. In 2002, Howard was underwater sequence director and Michelle was location manager for the McGillivray Freeman's IMAX feature Coral Reef Adventure, a film in which both Howard and Michelle are featured on camera. Of the five highest-grossing 3D films produced by the IMAX Corporation, two were directed by Howard. Into the Deep has earned box office receipts of over $70 million, and Deep Sea 3D has earned over $96 million. The Hall's 2009 production, Under the Sea 3D, has earned over $52 million. Between them, Howard and Michelle have won seven Emmy Awards. Howard has produced and directed many award-winning natural history television films, including a National Geographic special, which he co-produced with Michelle, and three episodes of the PBS series Nature. Howard also directed and Michelle produced the award-winning five-hour series Secrets of the Ocean Realm for PBS. Thank you, Howard and Michelle, for joining me this afternoon uh, on the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast. How are you this afternoon? We're doing great, thanks. We're, we're great. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, it's an absolute privilege. So I just wanted to ask you guys a few questions with regards to uh, your careers and um, how you got into them and, um, and basically some advice for some of our listeners. So first of all, uh, to Howard, uh, can you just give us a little bit of um, kind of the history of how you got into uh, wildlife filmmaking? Well, I started as a diving instructor and put myself through college by teaching diving. And uh, I think most people that do wildlife film work uh, are very often first experts in a particular environment or with particular species, and then they pick up camera work later on. Uh, that's certainly my case. I was, I've always been a diver and consider myself more of a professional diver than, than a filmmaker, although that's what I've been doing for the last 40 years. So uh, teaching diving, uh, uh, I started looking for ways to enjoy diving more and picking up a camera and going out and taking photographs uh, enhanced the sport for me. I started writing articles for dive magazines and wildlife magazines, eventually became part of the masthead of a number of these magazines. And uh, wrote 
over 100 articles for magazines and so forth. Uh, and then uh, that eventually evolved into doing uh, motion picture camera work. And since then, I've been making my own films. Well, and, and that's fantastic. You know, one of the things I hear very often is that people in the industry do get into it through other means. It's not that they necessarily were pursuing film in the first place. And, and that was very much the, the same um, instance with myself. Now, how did you make a transition from uh, filming into IMAX filming? Because, you know, there's a big difference there. Where, where did that come about? Well, what happened was I made a film in 1990 called Seasons of the Sea. And the film was uh, shown on the BBC and here on PBS. Uh, it was a very successful film and arguably the first real uh, underwater animal behavior film. And uh, I, I had no idea it was such a big deal when I was making it or even afterwards. But uh, the film uh, won the Golden Panda Award for Best Picture at Wild Screen 1990. And it won the Festival Choice Award at the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival the following year. Uh, and because the film was so successful, I had people asking me to make films for them, which is, you know, unheard of, really. Uh, and one of the things that happened was I got a call from a guy named Graham Ferguson, who happens to be the founder of IMAX. Uh, he'd seen the film and he asked if I would be willing to direct the first underwater IMAX 3D film. <laughs> and that's that's how that happened. It was a call out of the blue. Wow, that, that's fantastic. And that very much off the back of your work um, at film festivals. And that, that can just show the power of the, of the film festival. Um, now, you guys have won, uh, I think, seven Emmys and numerous other awards. Does that now kind of, is there that pressure there for you when you go out filming to, to make a show um, or a documentary that is going to win awards? Is that kind of a primary goal for you? Or um, is that just the icing on the cake? Uh, it certainly is not a, a, a goal. We don't make films that we hope are going to win awards specifically. Um, uh, it does, however, uh, a lot of good if you, one of your films you make does win uh, awards. And a case in point with Seasons of the Sea winning Best Picture at Wild Screen, that opened the door for me doing an IMAX 3D film. And it simply wouldn't have happened if I hadn't won that award. So uh, we don't we don't specifically work to make films that win awards, but we're very happy when our films do. Absolutely, I'm sure. Now, can you give us a little bit of a description of the differences between, say, an IMAX camera and a standard 35mm camera, and then even, say, an IMAX 3D camera, which again, I'm sure is very, very different? Well, all the films that we've made in IMAX were captured on 70mm film. That's changing now. Uh, a lot of films are being captured with digital cameras. There's still some diehard producers and directors out there capturing in 70 millimeter. But uh, all of our films uh, were 70 millimeter products. And, uh, and most of the television films that we've made were captured in 16 millimeter. Uh, and IMAX is all about size. It's the size of the negative, which transmits to the size of the picture you can project, which translates to the size of the camera necessary and the size of the film that you load into it. Uh, and IMAX is just the largest there is. Uh, there isn't any film format that's bigger than that. Uh, the 16-millimeter camera system that I used for doing television productions weighed about uh, 60 pounds. Uh, when I was ready to put it in the water. That's mm -hmm. in the water housing. 
the IMAX 2D system, which we used for making Island of the Sharks and a variety of other 2D IMAX films, weighs 250 pounds. Uh, and the IMAX 3D system is, uh, it's just gigantic. The underwater housing ready to go in the water is close to 1,300 pounds. And in both cases, the IMAX cameras only run for three minutes before you have to change film. Wow. It's astonishing to think that it would be possible to do anything with something that weighs as much as a horse, because <laughs> that's pretty much the same weight as a horse, right? How do you uh, manage on a boat with a 1,300-pound camera, getting it in the water, and then just, just your general logistics in terms of doing a production? You know, run us through kind of a, a normal scenario. If you're running for such a small amount of time, um, Time must be of the essence in terms of recording hours in a day and obviously the wildlife being there. You know, how does that all come together for you? Well, the most important thing is planning. Uh, we do a lot of very meticulous planning. Uh, before we make a film, I write a script, which includes all the written narration and all the shots included in it. Uh, that always changes as the production goes on and the animals decide what they really want to do rather than what I thought they were going to do. Right. It gives me a, a very good foundation for what I'm going after when I go in the water. And so every time we make a dive, we have very specific ideas of what it is we want to shoot. Uh, we never swim around with a 1,300-pound camera looking for things that are pretty. Uh, we always have a very specific goal. And the subjects we choose are generally, well, they're always subjects that are easily filmable. Uh, I wouldn't uh, try to go after, you know, blue whales with a, an IMAX 3D camera. We go after starfish and sea urchins and things that don't move very fast, uh, but things that are, that are interesting and have interesting behaviors, but animals that aren't going to be frightened by the size and the bulk of the camera and by the noise. Oh, interesting. Okay, so some of the work you've done with the larger mammals hasn't been with one of those big IMAX 3D cameras then? With, that's that's correct. Uh, uh, for one thing, big subjects don't really look great in th IMAX 3D. Uh, what the strength of IMAX 3D is really small subjects with uh, interesting behaviors that seem to hover in the theater within arm's reach. It's hard to get a great white shark to do that uh, or a, a whale to do that. We've we've filmed both. Uh, sharks, specifically great whites, and we filmed uh, Mickey whales with the IMAX 3D camera. So it's not that we never do it. It's just not really what we're, we're really about. And the films are really much more about small animal behaviors. The, the trick to it, or if I hate, I shouldn't probably use the word trick, but the mechanism to make that happen, to be able to get the bigger animals as well as smaller animals um, to be able to capture the images with the very large IMAX 3D camera system is to set up the camera in a place where you know the animals will be um, habituating and coming close enough to the camera so that you can get the images. Certainly. So they're, they're not afraid by you coming towards them with it. Yeah, that makes makes sense. Now we Or we just set up the cameras, sometimes handheld, sometimes on a tripod, but in an area where we know the animals will come by so that we can... Uh, capture the footage right now if you have an issue with a camera now we've all been there you know whatever technology we're using technology always fails us at some point uh, you know and you have to strip it down and work out what's going wrong and and get back to filming 
when you have a camera that big that no doubt is housed very heavily for underwater use, um, what what happens when you have an issue? Well, obviously, you, you don't get the shot, and you have to go back to the surface and fix the camera. And especially in the IMAX format, that is far from unusual. Uh, in fact, when we made Into the Deep, the first underwater IMAX 3D film, the first seven days that we were out on the sea, the camera never actually worked without jamming. Uh, and we didn't get a single shot the first seven days. So when that happens, we bring the camera back to the surface. Our technicians go over it and fix it. And uh, surprisingly, we can fix almost anything when we're out on the boat. Uh, and then we take it back down and give it another try. So it's it's just the obvious thing. You know, if, it, if it's broke, we try to fix it. In terms of working on, say, an IMAX movie and, say, working on a network show for, say, PBS or National Geographic, are there many differences between those two? Um, do you have more control over your IMAX films or, you know, what, what kind of differences are there? Well, I've been given a lot of latitude in making in films, especially in IMAX, um, but it's still a team of people. And uh, in some cases, I've done the editing on the, the finished productions myself. Um, in many cases, I've written the narration, uh, but I'm very happy working with professional editors that do a really good job at that sort of thing. And in, in many of the cases, uh, when we're doing IMAX movies, we have outside editors. Uh, about half of the television films that we've made have been made with outside editors. Um, it's you know it's just part of the, the 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 nature of the beast that. It takes a lot of people to do these things. And with IMAX films, we have literally dozens of people working in post-production on them. Now, you, you guys have an amazing, uh, amazing website with lots of your footage on there, which is fabulous to look at. And one of them that really stands out for me is the Great Blue, the big uh, blue whale, 100-foot blue whale there that you were filming. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to swim with um, whale sharks about 20 years ago off the Ningaloo Reef in Australia. And it's, it's just awe-inspiring to be near a creature of that size. Um, but a blue whale is something very, very very different, huge, largest creature ever to exist. What's it like to prepare yourself to get in the water with a camera and film a creature like that? Have you, did you dive much with blue whales before you did any filming or um, was that some of your first experiences with them? No, I, I've never been in the water with a blue whale without a camera in my hands and encounters are so rare that that would be almost a nightmare to have a good opportunity and not have a camera. So uh, I would say that one of the big advantages is that blue whales occur right off the coast of San Diego where we live. And so we're in a position to go out when the conditions are good, when the blue whales are here. And that's the way many of the very best shots are captured. People that actually live in a location, see the environment, on a day-to-day -day basis and are able to go when conditions are just right. Uh, with blue whales, conditions are generally not right. Uh, it's a very difficult shot to get. And I have, I would say, about three minutes of footage to show for the last 10 years of going out every year and trying to get shots. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that says it all. And it's, um, it, well, it's incredible footage. Those three minutes you have are, uh, are stunning. And, um, you know, it, it's one of those things I remember 
being in the water, I haven't dived for probably 10 years now. The last diving I did was with the sardine run off the coast of Durban. And um, I just remember, you know, that feeling of excitement when you're in the water. It's hard to contain yourself when you've got a camera and you have a job to do like that. And there's this experience happening in front of you. And when it's something like a blue whale, I'm sure it's very hard to contain yourself at the same time. Now, well, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say it's certainly hard to 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 um, be out there and and have the opportunity and then make a mistake and uh, uh, with focus or particles of stuff on the the dome of the camera or something like that. It it's a, a very rare thing to see one of these animals underwater, uh, and because the blue whale is so large, it's very hard to get any perspective on it. So. As surprising as it is, that the experience is not much different than diving with any other whale. Uh, you just don't appreciate how far away the animal is compared to a, a smaller species. A, uh, a blue whale could actually get a small humpback whale in its mouth. <laughs> wow. I mean, there's that much larger. They're, they're twice the length of a humpback whale and many times the weight. And to see one underwater, is, you know, it's easy to misjudge their size and how close they are. They always look um, smaller than they actually are, and they always look much closer than they actually are. Right. And I noticed that with the film, it actually does look like you're, you know, 18 inches off the nose of, of the whale. And when it starts opening its mouth, it's incredible. Yeah, I'm probably about 25 feet away. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's a good old perspective for you. Now, Michelle, I'd love to bring you in at this stage and, and just ask you the same question as we did at the beginning with Howard about how how you got into filmmaking and um, how you guys got together. And uh, you, you both run uh, Howard Hall Productions together. Um, tell me a bit about that. Well, my entry into... Uh film production was long after Howard's. I actually had a first career working as a as a registered nurse for a couple of decades. And during that time, I had decided that I wanted to learn how to scuba dive. And that was actually when I met Howard. He was my diving instructor. Um, one thing led to another and, and we eventually got married. And I continued to work in my nursing career for another 10 years. Um, so in 1991, I left nursing and joined the family business. And um, <laughs> Howard usually interrupts here and says that I became his boss. Um, <laughs> sure that that's true, but I did take over running a lot of the office and uh, and producing the films that he directs and shoots. Wonderful. So now I, I also see from your website that you are um, a big still photographer. Yes, I am. You yep. do a lot of the stills that are on there. Um, so do you, when, when you guys go out and you're producing together, d tell me a bit about um, the kind of roles that you take on. Would you take on a stills photography role and make sure you got stills for the production um, as well as managing and producing? Um, how does that work? Well, yes, exactly. So when obviously my, my primary responsibility and, and goal when we're in production and out in the field is to be sure the production is going properly. Uh, but I do keep an eye and a mind on um, shooting behind the scenes, still photos, both uh, top side of what's happening with the crew as well as video of that so that we have that documented, but uh, also underwater shooting, uh, capturing images of the 
crew working, with the camera, working with the subjects that we're filming, as well as animal behavior stills themselves. It's wonderful when you can work as a team like that and someone's getting stills as well, because I know from many of the productions I've done, you know, I've lacked getting good production stills. And it's always one of those things that it's a, um, you know, you find out after the production that you're lacking the stills that, you know, you could have got. And um, so it's always fantastic to have, you know, a crew together who knows what they're doing and, and can get those. Now, this is um, a bit more of a personal question. My, my wife actually asked me to ask you guys this um what's it like working as a husband and wife team especially when you're out on a boat and so you can't get away from one another <laughs> uh, i would not want to get away from him <laughs> one of the Good wonderful things, one of the wonderful things about working together is that we are able to spend so much time together and we we sort of go through a withdrawal if we're um uh, not together for periods of time but the fact is when we're on location um, it all becomes very professional. Um, I mean, yes, we're husband and wife and I'm producer and he's director and cameraman, but, um, we have our roles, we have our responsibilities. And sometimes it's not until evening when we're back in our cabin together that we have the chance to have some alone time and, and catch up on what's been going on because he's been busy filming and in the water diving. And I've been busy managing topside um, activities or in the water myself with my camera, uh, as we've talked about capturing behind the scenes still photos. So we often don't um, really have alone time for hours and hour, hours and hours. Um, but we very much enjoy working together. Our responsibilities are quite different. We rarely have um, any squabble or conflict over who should do what because my strengths uh, tend to be things that Howard is not interested in doing or feels that he's not good at and vice versa. So uh, it really, things fell into place very easily and very well when I left my nursing job and, and came into the family business. Oh, that that's great. And do you find that the two of you working together in the productions that it's easier than working with outside crew. I know there's a lot of husband and wife crews that work together in the filming industry. And, um, you know, do you, do you find that easier just being together and kind of knowing each other's thoughts and working well together? Well, I do find that uh, much easier <laughs> than working with other people. And as far as relationships are concerned, when you're doing wildlife film work, you're away a lot. And, I think one of the reasons you see so many successful husband and wife teams is because in order to keep a relationship going, it's, it works much better if you're both able to travel. Um, one person being gone for 150 days out of the year is just, it, that's tough on a relationship. Um, and so, you know, we, when we travel, we travel together and, uh, uh, you know, it, it just works out great. Now to this question to both of you, um, out of all of the experiences, and you guys had some amazing experiences filming, what would you say was has been the pinnacle so far of your careers? Well, I think uh, making the IMAX 3D films uh, has been uh, the, the pinnacle. Uh, the films are big. The, uh, the budgets are, are much greater than television films. Uh, the scale of organization is much bigger. Uh, and... It's wonderful when the, when the film is all finished to sit in a 
really nice theater and see your images projected on a screen that's 80 feet high. Uh, that's just a magical experience. Uh, we've been really fortunate that some of the films we've made have been overwhelmingly successful. Uh, Under the C3D is uh, grossed over $96 million. And uh, Into the Deep is grossed over 77. Uh, our last film, Under the Sea, is up to about 50 million now. Maybe maybe 51. More, yeah, more, more. more. So th those are those are really good numbers for IMAX movies. And uh, it's very gratifying to see the films that we make received so well. Uh, they've uh, many of them have won major awards, and that's it's just been great. So um, that's that's a huge payoff. And working in in the IMAX films has just been a, on a level way higher than working on television films. I I think um, further to what Howard is saying is it's not just the dollar figure, the box office dollar figure, but what that represents in the outreach of those films and. Mm -hmm how the message messages that we've tried to put that we have put in the films uh, gets uh, disseminated to people around the world these films have, have are shown not just in North America but around the world and they have an ongoing life versus a television uh, film that might be sh that would be shown one night and might be repeated sometime later. The IMAX films just um, get shown for years and years and years. And that message continues to disseminate to people around the world. And um, one of the things that we strive to do with our IMAX films is to make them uh, friendly to both children and adults. So the message, again, is uh, disseminated to people of all ages. I think there's also, um, when you look at how difficult it is to make an IMAX movie, uh, the complexity of it. Uh, when we go to, uh, on our last film, Under the Sea 3D, we shipped 8,000 pounds of equipment to Papua New Guinea, to Indonesia, uh, and you know, a variety of other difficult locations uh, with a crew of 12 to 14 people. Uh, the Im immense amount of organization that, uh, is required to make all that happen. Uh, and then with the idea that you're going to go and capture marine animal behavior sequences, which with a camera like the IMAX 3D camera just seems totally problematic. Uh, when it all works, and after 130 days in the field, you come back with a, a you know the bulk of a, a film that's going to be good. And when you see it you know, projected and you see the behavior sequences working, realizing how difficult it, it is, uh, is very, very gratifying to see it all actually work. And so part, part of it is, you know, the enormous challenge of making a wildlife film in this format and being able to step up and meet that challenge and come away with a successful film. Uh, the audience doesn't care, you know, that you made it with a 70 millimeter camera that weighs 1300 pounds. They don't even know that as far as they're concerned, it's just another, you know, motion picture, a very nice one and a big, beautiful image, but they don't appreciate how difficult it is. Uh, so it's really for for us and our crew and the people we produce the films for to appreciate you know, what we've accomplished. And I, I get a big kick out of that.
And it really is an amazing accomplishment. I know from having, you know, filmed around the world with standard size cameras that logistics are just a nightmare most of the time, whether it's going through customs and, uh, you know, just making sure all the gear gets there in one piece and making sure all the crew are on their game to, to handle all of that equipment correctly and make sure it's all there. It, it can be a complete nightmare. And so, you know, it's a different level when you're talking about 8,000 pounds worth of gear. Um, yeah, what an accomplishment. I mean, I can only imagine. So, um, uh, but, you know, when looking at your films, they're incredible. I mean, they really show, you know, the passion and the energy and the effort that's gone into them. Uh, certainly coming from the filming industry, you can see that. And um, yes, I think uh, the, the effort is incredible to to get those kind of images. So, so thank you guys so much for doing it because, you know, without without you being out there and taking all that gear around, we wouldn't have these amazing films and they, they really are great. Well, thank you. I think a, a lot of times people uh, look at the, uh, the difficulty in making these films and the bulk and size of the gear and the expense of shooting 70 millimeter 3D and all those things as, you know, a, a hindrance. But uh, the way I look at it is that uh, the, the challenge of making this kind of film is so great that... Uh, a lot of directors just don't want to take it on. Uh, very few underwater films have been made other than by myself uh, in the IMAX 3D format. And if it wasn't so difficult, I probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to succeed at it. Uh, so mm. one of the re things I love about the IMAX 3D format, and I really do love it, is that it's so incredibly difficult to do. And if it was done with a, you know, a camera the size of a, uh, a shoebox, uh, you know, I probably would have had a much more difficult time competing with all the other people out there that like to do underwater movies. Mm, that's interesting. And, and it does, from from being in the industry, it does look like, like something that's extremely difficult to do. And of course, now we see this influx with all this new technology and these cheaper cameras and smaller cameras. We see this huge influx of people uh, online and um, in television making shows uh, just purely because of how accessible the technology is now, uh, which it never used to be. And, and obviously with IMAX cameras, they're still very unaccessible. <laughs> So I'm sure you'll be doing this for many, many more years to come. Now, um, again, question for both of you. In terms of having traveled the world and um, seen many of the oceans that you guys have, have you seen any changes over the years? And if so, what kind of changes have you seen to the oceans? Well, certainly we've seen lots of changes. Uh, I've been diving now since uh, uh, the late 1960s uh, and we've seen pretty dramatic changes in specific locations. Uh, we made a number of films in the Sea of Cortez. Uh, when we started working back there in the late 1970s, uh, it could not have been a more spectacular place to go diving with huge schools of hammerhead sharks, whale sharks, fantastic schools of tuna, marlin, sailfish, you name it. Uh, today, you're very lucky to see anything bigger than, you know, uh, a shoebox out there. They're, the animals, all the big animals are pretty much gone. Uh, overfishing has had a dramatic effect, not only on just the populations of big animals, but the effect of the overall ecology, which has trickled down to the health of the reef itself. So that's been dramatic. Uh, in California, we've seen dramatic changes here, too. Some of them uh, good and some of them bad. Uh, 
one of the things that we have filmed a lot is the shark populations off the San Diego coast. And it used to be you could go out and you would see 50 or 60 blue sharks in a single day. Uh, today, almost all those sharks are gone. Uh, the, you know, to say they've been decimated is a dramatic understatement. There's probably a, a tenth, one-tenth one of a percent of the population remains uh, due to offshore drip gillnets. On the other hand, the inshore gillnets have been banned for about 30 years, and we're seeing things come back like seven-gill sharks and giant sea bass and a lot of other things. Uh, we've also seen some very positive effects from marine protected areas. The California Channel Islands National Park has protected a quite a bit of area out there, and we're seeing big lobsters and abalone and, and big fish that usually don't get big anyplace else uh, populating those marine protected areas. So, uh, yeah, we've seen a lot of changes. But I think one of the things that, that people uh, may not realize is the importance of scuba divers in that whole mix. A lot of people think that, you know, you put a bunch of divers in the water and it they, they wreck the reef and they chase away the marine life and, you know, the divers are bad for the environment. And that's just the opposite. Uh, divers are good for the environment because they're an economic force for keeping these environments as pristine as possible and protecting the populations of animals that live on these reefs. Without divers, you know, bringing their money to locations like Indonesia and the Bahamas and other places, there would be no protection to those environments, and they'd be in much poorer shape than they are now. Uh, and the amount of damage that divers uh, do to reefs by breaking coral with their fins or accidentally touching the coral is just insignificant compared to the effects of overfishing and uh, deforestation and development on land that have much more dramatic effects on the environment. Right. Do, do you think that um, it's going to have an impact on your films now in the future with what you're seeing, the changes you're talking about? Um, do you see a, a huge impact on your films in terms of finding the, the wildlife that you're looking for? Well, certainly we've always seen an impact on our films because it's not something that has just happened recently. This overall environmental decline has been going on for the last, well, couple hundred years. And, uh, what happens with us is we, uh, we uh, start planning a film, and we start planning for shooting about 18 months before we actually ever get in the water. And during that time, the things that we plan to film have changed. The environments have changed, and sometimes the animals are entirely gone. So we've had that happen many times where we've planned on, on shooting something that was really, really good when we planned it and is not so good when we finished it. In terms of, uh, as you're saying, the, the diving community bringing uh, money into these less fortunate areas that then the money can be spent on conservation, marine conservation, um, do, you, do you think there's enough of that being done? I mean, not just that, but also conservation in general in the oceans. Is there enough being done to kind of reverse the effects of what you've seen over the years? Or do you think a lot more needs to be done? Well, no, certainly enough has not been done. Uh, and I don't, I don't really see enough ever being done until we start addressing the fundamental problem, and that's overpopulation. We just have too many people on the planet and too many people using a increasingly scarce resource, and uh, people don't really want to talk about that very much, but that's the fundamental problem. Uh, carbon dioxide production is a per capita issue. It's, you know, it's 
the more people we have and the more people we add to the population, the more carbon dioxide we're going to produce. And if we, even if we cut back the per capita uh, rate by 10%, we're still going to produce more than ever before in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's, it's – um, populations is a fundamental problem and especially when you go to places like Indonesia and the Philippines and you see how many people are dependent upon the marine resources. It's just impossible to imagine these reefs recovering really, really well unless – there's a, um, a community of divers bringing money to an area and providing the justification for making it a marine protected area. And there are many uh, places around the world that where that type of conservation effort is in place and, and to their success. There's a, uh, an area in Indonesia called the Misul Eco Resort and they came in, I'm not sure how many years ago, the owners of that area came in and uh, managed to get the area designated as uh, a protected area. And they now have fabulous diving in that area and um, have seen a wonderful increase in the marine creatures um, on those reefs. And that's just one example. There's an area in uh, Sea of Cortez called Cabo Pumo that has also been uh, successful in designated, designating that area as uh, protected and as a sanctuary. And those are just two examples. Well, that's fantastic. Now, in terms of um, the impact, and, and we're talking about impact in a different way now of your films, um, what kind of impact are you hoping or do you hope that your, your IMAX films are going to have on the, uh, the viewers? Well, we generally do not make hardcore conservation films. Uh, there's other people that do that and do a much better job than than I would be able to do. Um, and I think, and a lot of people say in the film production community, especially in natural history films, that all natural history films should be serious conservation films. And I, I disagree with that to some extent. Mm-hmm. I that that we need a, a wide variety of films to make people not only want to protect the environment, but to appreciate it to begin with. And the films that we have made have always had a, a, some conservation message. Generally, that message is relatively soft. Uh, and my idea has been to make the audience appreciate the environment, maybe fall in love with the, the animals and the, the you know, beauty of the reefs, uh, and come out of the theater with a, a good feeling uh, and the, the sense that it's just a wonderful, wonderful environment out there. And then when they learn later by watching somebody else's conservation film or reading in a newspaper or magazine that the environment is being threatened by ocean acidification or overfishing, uh, they're more likely to be proactive about it. Uh, so I feel it's been our job to increase a sense of value for the animals and the environment. And that's pretty much what we do best. And I totally agree. I think that there needs to be a range as well, just purely because if you're, you know, people don't always want to turn on the TV or watch a movie and have a message pushed down their throat. You know, they, in many cases, just want to be entertained. But if you can entertain them with beautiful images and show and inspire them with creatures they wouldn't normally see, it's a good, um, it's opening the door to all of these issues. Um, and as you say, then they can pursue it further once they uh, they get more information. Um, most, most, most audiences don't want to watch a conservation film. And one of the things you have to keep in mind, especially when it comes to IMAX films, is that people are paying 12 to $15 to come into the theater. 
And when they pay that kind of money and walk into the theater and invest you know, an hour of their time, uh, they don't want to come out feeling bad. They want to come out feeling good. And if you make a film that has a serious conservation message that basically says because of all the people on the planet, we're going to destroy the environment and kill all the reefs with carbon dioxide, people are going to be angry about it because they spent $1,500 to be told that they really you know, should, should go jump off the end of the planet. So uh, we don't. that's not a very good mechanism for IMAX films. You need to make IMAX films that make people feel like they spent their money well when they come into a theater. It's different. So, yep. You're talking about free television. Te- television can say what it wants, and people can turn, on, turn it off and walk away. But it's, it's different when you, you, people are paying money. Right, absolutely. And one final question for you guys. I want to ask it to you both separately, just for your different roles that you both play um, in, in your productions. Um, Howard, first of all, advice in terms of, um, for our listeners, people who are looking to get into, say, marine cinematography and uh, maybe into the IMAX um, uh, world of filmmaking, what advice could you give them? Well, you, not surprisingly, I've been asked this question a lot over the last 40 years. And uh, usually I come up with a, a, a paragraph answer in an email that's really not not ins- insincere, but inadequate. And a, a number of years ago, I decided to do something about that. So I wrote a lengthy and well thought out essay on uh, breaking into the uh, the business. And I called the article Breaking In. Uh, it's on the, the homepage of our website, howardhall.com. People that want to know uh, my thoughts on getting into the, the business could go there. Uh, and the lower left-hand part of the uh, homepage, they can click on the article breaking in and they can read the answer, which is much too long to, to give you here. <laughs> <laughs> but fantastic. I mean, that's a great resource. So thank you for that. We will also put a link to that um, on the masterwildlifefilmmaking.com uh, episode page. So I'll, I'll put a direct link to that so people can find it. But um, I'm going to have to go on there and read it myself now. Um, so uh, same question to you, Michelle. Now, you're, you're production manager, you produce, um, you do still photography. What advice would you have for someone breaking into that side of the industry? Can I tell you to tell your listeners to just go read Howard's article? <laughs> 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 that sounds That's too much of a cop-out. Um, you know, I came into it from such a different um perspective coming from the nursing background where I actually did hospital nursing and then I was an administrator. And uh, I think for me, the skills that I gained um, as an administrator, as well as in general nursing, where I had to learn how to set priorities, uh, what's important to do now that and other things that can wait, all of those things have certainly played well in my success in um, helping to run this business and producing these films. Uh, I think as a producer, you need to have good uh, interpersonal skills, uh, good organizational skills, be willing to uh, spend time at a desk, um, understand computers and how to research things and uh, uh, those sorts of things. Of course, as a still photographer, you need to uh, hone your skills in photography. If you want to be an underwater photographer, becoming 
comfortable as a scuba diver first is uh, is obviously imperative, and then you can pick up the camera and and uh, apply those skills. And, and so, when you guys w- with your crews um, that you use to go out and make the IMAX movies, what do you do? You look for people primarily with the skill set um, already embedded in them. Uh, you know, they're experienced in their field, or do you look for people who are um, capable of taking on anything without moaning? <laughs> I know in the first episode of the series, uh, speaking with Rick Rosenthal, and he was very much on the side of, um, you know, he liked to mold people to kind of work with. With him the way he worked and people who are willing to do the job as opposed to getting you know p- potentially very experienced people who just weren't willing to you know put themselves out in different areas of the field um you know h- how does it work for you guys and your crew well i think um everybody does this differently and uh, every director and producer has a, a different way of relating to their crews um in in our case uh, we well, in, in all the years we've been doing this, I've only had one employee that <laughs> treated me like an employer. Uh, the rest of my the guys that work with me treat me like a friend, and we are friends, very good friends. We're, we're social when we're not working on a project, and uh, I, you know, they say whatever they want to around me. And and the uh, the, the fellow that treated me like an employer uh, only worked with us the one job, and he was done. <laughs> right. So I I. Uh, well, if you're thinking of who I think you're thinking of, the issue and one of the things that's imperative in picking a crew is that people need to be able to get along with each other. When we're out on location for three, four, or five weeks at a time and in a confined space on a boat, if you can't get along with people um, in the process of doing your job and doing it with good humor, then um, you're not going to be on the next shoot. And that's kind of what happened with this person Howard's talking about. Right. And of course, being on a boat, I mean, that's hardcore filmmaking in terms of when you have a crew. I know from, you know, traveling with crews that it can be hard to find good people to work with that all get on really well. And that's on land when you can, you know, kind of separate. Um, but being confined on a boat for many days at a time, that, that must be very hard and, and hard to find a good crew. Uh, it's just the opposite, actually. The, all the work that we put into uh, the really blood, sweat and tears that go into making our films is all done in the office before we actually get on the boat. Once we're on the boat, we're a bunch of sport divers doing what we love to do. And going out with a, a group of your friends and uh, working with spectacularly difficult camera equipment and doing things underwater and currents with a, a gigantic camera and huge tripod and cable-supplied movie lights and doing all that stuff, uh, that's just great fun. And all the guys in my crew love to do it and enjoy it, and we – after a day of, of working hard underwater, we sit around on the deck in the evening uh, having a beer and laughing about it. So it's that's the good part. Once we're off the boat and I have to then sit through six months of editing and dealing with executive producers and stuff, that's that's you know, that's work. And <laughs> it's it's uh, it's it's not always fun. But the, the, being out on the boat, that's that's always a joy. It's it's the reward for being in this business. Uh, to be out there working in the environment, and it's just pure fun. And I, I think talking about what advice I might pass on, there's there's probably uh, there's two different ways to go through life, make yourself happy, and be successful. One is to go get a job as a lawyer or something else and just make a whole bunch of money 
and then spend it doing whatever you want. Uh, the other way to go through life is to do what you want and disregard the amount of money you make and just enjoy the job. Uh, and that's what I've chosen to do. And we've been very, very fortunate that it's made us a, a, a fair amount of money and we we live modest but, but well. And, and uh, I wouldn't change a thing. And if I had a, a ton of money, I don't think I could spend it having as much fun as we have when we're out <clears throat> in the field with our guys. So uh, I think that if people are trying to get into this business, they need to to realize that the the process is the reward and not you know the paycheck or even seeing your images up on the big screen. Uh, the process is the reward, and you 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 want to enjoy the process because it can be great fun, and it has been for us. Yeah, that's a that's a really good answer. Um, I like that a lot because I think in this this side of uh, of natural history filmmaking, I, I believe you're absolutely right. You've got to love what you're doing, um, and you know the rest will come. I know I've watched many different people from many different genres of filming, from news and all sorts of other television sides, where they really fight for what the the position they want, and you can see they're not enjoying it. And, you know, they, they spend many, many hours a day fighting to do their job. Um, and it just doesn't look enjoyable. And then you have to turn around and ask yourself, why are you doing it? You know, what, what is your motivation? And I think that summed it up beautifully. Just, Jake, Jake, yeah. just, just back to what Howard was saying before about our crew. And you were asking about the crew and getting along and, and so on. We, we have worked with, when we were doing major film productions, we worked with many of the crew on film after film after film. So not only were they friends, we got to know each other, but on occasion when we did have to uh, hire somebody new, we were very careful about who we chose to hire and interviewed and really put thought into uh, who that person would be, that they would be someone who not only had the skills that we need needed and were willing to uh, do a variety of jobs, but were would potentially be compatible so that clearly is um are things that we look for when we're hiring people certainly yeah well you guys have been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time out to be on the show. I, I got one very quick last question that's, that, that I have to know the answer to. <laughs> How much does it cost to buy a 1,300-pound IMAX 3D rig? What's the cost involved on one of those? Well, it's probably pretty cheap today. With everybody switching to digital, you could probably buy that 1,300-pound camera system and make an aquarium out of it. <laughs> pretty cheap. But at the time that we were making... Um, IMAX 3D films, and when uh, that camera system was the only real way to do it, uh, the camera itself was valued initially at two and a half million dollars. Uh, they, wow. after they made the first one, uh, they eventually made three more. So there's now four of them, and they're they're valued much less than that for insurance purposes. The underwater housing, which was uh, partially designed by Bob Cranston and myself, uh, Bob's worked with me on almost all the films that we've done. Um, uh, we designed that system, and it cost about three hundred fifty thousand dollars to build. Uh, so that's that's sort of the value of it today. You can literally go out and make an IMAX cam uh, IMAX movie and do a pretty darn good job of it with a camera that costs a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars. So things are changing faster than we're aware that they're changing. Uh, the technologies of image capture is 
It's just it's blazing ahead faster than people like me can even appreciate it. Um, so I had a, we had a, a good time of it. We had it in the golden years when, uh, you know, going from the very first underwater IMAX 3D film ever made to probably the last one that was ever made in 70 millimeter film, which is uh, under the sea 3D. Wow. Well, fantastic. You guys, again, have been great. Um, I hope that all our listeners are going to rush out. And um, I, I'm assuming, I think most of your shows are available on Blu-ray these days, aren't they? I've seen a few of them. Uh, are, are they all available on DVD, Blu-ray disc? Um, many of them are. Uh, one of the, the, the sad things about IMAX is that they're des- IMAX films are designed to be seen on a really, really big screen. Right. So composition for uh, an IMAX film is different than the composition for television. So IMAX films suffer from a lack of close-up shots, uh, which in the theater you don't miss because the things are so huge. Mm-hmm. So they don't translate extremely well to DVD, but they many of the films are on DVD and are available on Amazon. As Excellent. well as on Netflix. As well as on Netflix. Oh, fantastic. Okay, well, that's that's good to know. And so are they still available at the IMAX? Are they still being put out at the theaters? Uh, yes, they are. And um, I can't off the top of my head say which films are being shown at which theaters, but yes, they are still being okay. shown around the world. Yep. Excellent. Okay, well, I'll try and track down a schedule that I can put on uh, on as a resource so people could go on there and check some of your films out. Again, you guys have been great. Thank you so much for taking the time out and um, have the, a great rest of your day. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you, Jake. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please leave a rating and a comment. And remember to subscribe to keep up to date with the series. You can find out more information on wildlife filmmaking at masterwildlifefilmmaking.com where you'll find valuable free resources like downloadable reports and video tutorials. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.